All right, so we are engaged in the study of how to study the Bible. And our focus last week was on English translations because that's your tool, that's your strategy, your, your, or, the, or that's your, your methodology for study. You need to use a, a Bible. And because the vast majority, if not all of us, do not know Hebrew and do not know Greek, we're going to be using a translation. And so we need to consider what it, what it means to use a good translation. And, it, and it's really not my goal to bash English translations. It's to help you see what is the, 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 the best use of the English language to translate, the best practice for, for developing an English translation is what I should say. And so we spent our time looking at uh, a few different translations, and I want to skip ahead. I'm going to come back to some of these slides very quickly, but I need to get up here to this, uh, to this slide, because I forgot to give it, to put it earlier. These are the four basic principles you need to remember when it comes to English translations. You need to pay attention to who is or who are the translators, because some translations, particularly the ones that fall in the category of a paraphrase, which really isn't a translation, but gets classified as such, those are often done by a single individual. The best and most preferred practice is to have a translation done by a committee, by multiple people, because there's checks and balances involved in the, the, the uh, uh, translation process. You also need, it's preferable to have a translation that is based on the Alexandrian text type. Now, you're not going to know what that really means in depth necessarily, but it means the best manuscript evidence is used uh, for those translations. The, the manuscripts that are the oldest and date closest to the original documents of the, of the New Testament in particular is what we're talking about. Those are the translations you want to seek out the most. They are the most preferable because they have the best, uh, the best evidence for the New Testament. Um, and most of the modern translations in, that you're going to use fall in this category of the Alexandrian text type. The only two exceptions are the King James Version, because the King James Version didn't have those manuscripts when it was originally translated, and the New King James Version, which is an update of the old King James Version, if you will, into a more modern reading, but uses the same manuscript evidence. The one positive for the New King James Version is it does make note of those places where there might be discrepancies between the different manuscript text types. So at least it offers you that. Moving on, the third thing you need to pay attention to is what is the translation's philosophy. Is it going to do a word-for-word -word translation, a thought-for-thought -thought translation, or a paraphrase? Word-for-word -word is always going to be preferable because it's a more literal translation. It doesn't try to interpret the text for you in advance. And finally, it's also good to consider the readability of the text, what its reading level is. And you can, you can Google this, you can research and find out what the, the reading grade level is for each translation. And the thing is, you, you, how are you going to be able to study something you can't read? I'll be honest, I can't read King James because I don't talk like Shakespeare. I find that very difficult reading for me. Now, there are people who don't, who, who, who that works for them. Great. But when I'm studying the Bible, I want, I want to read something that, that I can understand, that I can comprehend, that's on my, my reading level. And so that's something to take into consideration as well. And what we did last week is I reviewed a few of these translations for you. I'm going to review the last ones here in just a moment. I'm sorry, backing up so much. But, oh, did I lose it? I went too far. So we'll bring it back. I'm just going to skim these real quick with you. Yeah, I went way too far. All right. Started with the King James Version, originally authored in 1611, but the version that you, have, you might have in your hands or on your devices would be from 1769 update. Uh, it is translated by a committee. In fact, it's the originator of the translation by committee, so we owe a great attitude to the King James Version in that regard. Uh, again, I mentioned that source material uh, is the Textus Receptus, is, uh, is a... a less desirable manuscript evidence, but only because that's all they had back then. It was cutting-edge translation at, at that time because it was one of the first English, one of the first major printed English translations, if not the first, that used the original language source material. But we've had manuscripts discovered since then that have improved our translation of the Greek text in particular, and so that is no longer the best uh, 
the best manuscript evidence to be used. Uh, and additionally, the King James Version is a word-for-word type translation, which is ideal. So King James Version has some great qualities about it, and so worth mentioning, New King James Version is really just essentially an update to more modern English. So all the same characteristics of the King James Version apply to the New King James Version. From there, we talked about the New American Standard Version, which is built off of the old American, of the, off of the American Standard Version. And like the New King James, it's got that updated English. Uh, it's translated by committee. It uh, uses the most, uh, the critical text, the most, uh, um, the, 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 the best manuscript evidence is used in its translation of the New Testament. It does a word-for-word translation philosophy. So New, New American Standard has, has everything going for it as well. Then you go to the English Standard Version, which is built off of the, old rev- the original Revised Standard Version. Uh, and the English Standard Version, just like the New American Standard Version, hits all the marks as well. We then talked about the New Living Translation. This is the last one we got to talk about uh, last week. And while the New Living Translation, uh, one of the improvements it did is it, it was built originally built off of uh, the Living Bible, which was a paraphrase. And when they went in to update that paraphrase, they realized, oh, we need to make a translation, not a paraphrase. So they had that right, but then as it goes, you'll, you, they, they used a committee involved in it. They used the, the right manuscript evidence. The only issue to be concerned about is that it falls in the category of thought-for-thought thought translation. You don't have a word-for-word word translation, and that is preferable to a thought-for-thought thought because even in a thought-for-thought thought, uh, uh, type of translation, there is some interpretation done by the translators before it gets to you. So keep that in mind. From the New Living Translation, we then go on to the New International Version. I'm doing this in order of timeline, basically. And you can see the NIV uh, was published in the 1973 originally. It's had a couple of updates since then, the most recent being 2011. And it's had some spinoffs, too. You may have heard of the NIRV, the New International Reader's Version, which is put on a third grade level. And then there's the TNIV, the today's New International Version, which came out around that 2011 mark, and it was notorious for being the first one to get rid of gender specification in the text. So instead of saying mankind, it would say humankind. Instead of uh, using um, uh, men in the generic terminology for all people, it would use something that didn't have a gender specificity to it. So... um, The NIV started that trend, which has now become popular among a lot of translations. Even the New American Standard has adopted that practice in its 2020 update. But the New International Version, when you look at the details of it, it is translated by committee, uh, which is a positive for it. In fact, if you were to read the preface of the NIV, one of the interesting things you'll find is it lists every denomination that was involved in its translation. And if you read through it, it will list churches of Christ. That's because one Church of Christ scholar was involved in, in the process of translation, or at least the process of, of uh, oh, what's the terminology I'm looking for here? The, the process of, of, of signing off on translation for like one book of the Old Testament. And that professor was and I just blanked on his name. Hold on, let me go to my notes. Where did he go? Oh, there it is. Uh, and that particular professor was Jack Lewis of Harding University's Graduate School of Religion. Uh, and he was invited to serve on the Bible Translation Committee for the, for, to contribute notes to the books of Hosea and Joel. Not the whole Old Testament, not the whole Bible, just on those two books in particular. Just to point that out, that, so if you ever read the preface, you'll see that. Um, for source material, the NIV, like the New American Standard, English Standard Version, uses the, the best uh, manuscript evidence. But like the New Living Translation, its translation philosophy is that thought for thought as opposed to word for word. And so, once again, this is a translation that will do some of the interpretation ahead of time for you. Um, so that's something to be cautious about with it. It does read on a 7th to 8th grade level, which makes it useful for um, a lot of, of uh, readers who struggle with the higher reading levels associated with the New American Standard and the English Standard Version. Let me give you a couple of examples of New International Version texts. 
For, see, here's Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. As you can see, the top is the NIV, the bottom is the ESV. NIV says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The English Standard Version says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with, without which no one will see the Lord. In my opinion, the NIV reads much smoother and much more understandable in this particular passage. That phraseology, and for the holiness, that definite article in front of holiness kind of throws me off. I don't know if it does you. It just seems strange. So there are times when I look at the NIV and go, man, that reads a lot, a lot better. I can understand that passage better. But then there are other times where I'll come to something like Romans chapter 12 and verse 14. Sorry for the misprint on the NIV version up there at the top. The NIV says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The New King James, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, here's why I pull this passage out. In particular, the end of it, the NIV calls it true and proper worship. The New King James says reasonable service. The terminology there trends towards that concept of service more than worship, but the Greek terminology can apply to worship. And so it can be, if you're just reading the NIV, you might take this to say, okay, worship of God is just everything I do. There's, there's no, there's no uh, uh, more specific context than that. Whereas when you think about worship in Scripture, there, there's the uh, congregational component of worship. There's the individual component of worship. And so it can be a little misleading for, for a reader based on the way the NIV uh, says it in this text. So it's worth noting that there are ways in which it reads better than some translations, but there are ways in which other translations read better than it. Just pointing that out. Now let's go on to the next, trans, the next uh, English translation, and I'm using translation very loosely here because the one we're talking about is the message. It's the, the one in pink on that timeline. It came out over a series of years in, in individual books being translated in the early to late 90s in particular. And the message is the most famous paraphrase out there. It is a paraphrase uh, developed by one individual named Eugene Peterson. And he, uh, he just decided to make, to make this paraphrase because he wanted something easier to read than the regular translations. Now, you can read a lot about the origins of the message on uh, its website if you want to look into that. But the main thing to know about the message is that it's one translator, though on their website they say that his paraphrase was reviewed and vetted by a team of 20 translation consultants. They don't use the word paraphrase, but that's what it is. Also, the, the source material is non-specifically identified as original Hebrew and Greek languages. It does not tell what manuscripts were used, as is the case with all other English translations. The philosophy is paraphrase, not word for word, not thought for thought. It's, it's the author taking the uh, text of the original language and deciding for himself how to relate that into English in a way that sounds contemporary. And so, let me give you a couple of examples of the message. This is how I'll go with James chapter 4, verse 7. I want you to read the ESV with me first on the bottom. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You've probably heard that verse before, and that verse makes a lot of sense. Then you go to the message. So let God work his will in you. Yell aloud no to the devil and watch him make himself scarce. Do those sound like the same thing? No. Um, I understand. It's, it's much more um, loose and much more less refined because it's a paraphrase. It's one individual deciding how he wants it to sound. I'm going to give you another example. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. This is the message as well. And this is the passage where several sins are listed that members of the church in Corinth used to participate in. And it identifies these sins as things that would disqualify you from heaven. One thing to note, you'll notice I don't have verses in the text because the, the message doesn't assign verses to every line. It will say this section 
is for 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It doesn't specify that each line goes to a particular verse because it's a paraphrase, it's not a translation. Don't you realize that this is not the way to live? Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining in his kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it, don't qualify as citizens in God's kingdom. A number of you know from experience what I'm talking about. For not so long ago, you were on that list. Since then, you've been cleaned up and given a fresh start by Jesus, our Master, our Messiah, and by our God present in us, the Spirit. Now, here's the problem. The list of sins that are present in this text in all other English translations will specify adulterers and revilers and homosexuals. Well, do you get the idea that homosexuality is condemned in this passage from the message? Do you get the idea that I think drunkards appear in this passage as well? There's, there's a list of specific activities that are quantifiable as sin. And that gets blurred in a paraphrase so that you don't know the, spe- the specifics of what constitutes sin. So that's why these type of texts are dangerous. Now, the message has decreased in popularity over the years. It's currently the ninth most purchased English translation, and it previously it was uh, the eighth about ten years ago. But it's still one that gets appealed to from time to time. One final English translation I want to mention is the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. It uh, originated as the HCSB, as in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, back in the uh, uh, 90s and early 2000s, and it has since gone through a revision to be called the CSB. It is, uh, um, like most of the other English translations, it is uh, translated by committee. It is, uh, uses the best manuscript evidence. It is thought for thought like the NIV and the, the, the NIV and the New Living Translation. It reads on that 7th, 8th grade level, which is good. Christian Standard Bible isn't, I have not used it. I'm not incredibly familiar with it, but it's gained popularity uh, because it, it was part of the Southern Baptist Convention publishing arm, uh, B&H Publishing out of Nashville, Tennessee, and it, it, it gained notoriety through the Lifeway Christian stores. That's, that's where you would originally find it. But it's got a, a lot of uh, backing now, and it's rising in popularity but it would fall in that category with the NIV and the New Living Translation as a thought-for-thought um, translation. I haven't spent a lot of time with the CSB, but I do have a couple of examples. Like Matthew chapter 6 and verse 20, 27, the CSB says, Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? New King James, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? That's hard for us to read. But then you get the ESV, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? My point with this example is you can see how with the CSB, it's, it's not too far off from the English Standard Version, and the same would be said about the New American Standard Version. So it, it at times relates well to the translations that predominate our, our usage. Uh, but then I th- this is one that I brought up, First John chapter 2 and verse 2. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. ESV, he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, I know propitiation is one of those words. It's a church word. It's church jargon. It's not one of those words. You don't walk around on your average day talking about propitiation. It's not a word that's part of your vocabulary. And so it's kind of, an, it's kind of one of those, those, those words that we would like to have a, a substitute for. And the NIV provides such a substitute with atoning sacrifice, and the CSB uses that as well. So I'm trying to draw the comparison between those two. But we lose an elegant word as well, a, a word that is part of Christian vocabulary, and that is propitiation uh, with translations like this. So you can see how in the first example, it trended in the direction of the ESV. In this example, it trends in the direction of the NIV. So it's, it's one of those that I, I can't speak to its usefulness because uh, I haven't used it very much, but I can show examples of where it, sometimes it fits with the, it's very similar to our word-for-word translations, but other times it's, it's definitely thought-for-thought. And that's the most concerning thing about it. Now, so reviewing this, when you choose a translation, focus on the tra- who the translators are. The best practice is to have multiple committee-style translators. Focus on the source material. You want the, the oldest manuscripts involved in its translation. You want to look for the uh, uh, references to the uh, UBS and Nestle Holland uh, 
manuscripts, and I can't remember the numbers attached to those at the current level, but anyway, you want to, find, you want to have the best Greek manuscripts, you want it to uh, be a word-for-word translation, that's your best for study habits, and you want to check out the reading level for your own benefit, because it's going to be different for all of us. But with that being said, I want to transition now to our f- first conversations about studying in particular. As we talk about how to study the Bible, we start with the translations because that's what you're using. You're not studying Greek and Hebrew necessarily. You're studying through English. And so you need to be able to uh, understand why your translation is the way it is so you can determine if it's the best, best one for you to study from. So that's where we start. Now, let's, let's talk about inspiration for a moment. Let's talk about biblical inspiration. I want to start with this, this quote I came across. Let me get my. Because the Bible is God's message. It has eternal relevance. It speaks to all humankind in every age and in every culture. Because it is the Word of God, we must listen and obey. But because God chose to speak His Word through human words and history, every book in the Bible also has historical particularity. Each document is conditioned by the language, time, and culture in which it was originally written. And in some cases, also by the oral history it had before it was written down. Interpretation of the Bible is demanded by the tension that exists between its eternal relevance and its historical particularity. What that quote is saying is that when you look at the text of Scripture, you're looking at something that God inspired that will always have relevance. But you're also looking at something that was written in terminology and in settings that have a particular place in time. You're going to, to, to find that eternal relevance that exists in Scripture. You're going to have to pay attention to the culture, to the language, to the setting. That, that information matters. That's where we enter into the first steps of how to study the Bible. Understanding this balance that everything in the Bible has relevance for, the, for eternity but everything has a particular context to it, too, that you need to understand to make that connection between what was written at some time in the past and how it applies to today. So let's start talking about that. When it comes to biblical inspiration, let's, let's give it a definition. Inspiration means that the Bible has a divine origin and authorization. You're familiar with 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. It's really the, the only verse in the Bible that I'm aware of, that uses the term inspiration. But only in certain translations. So in the New King James Version, it says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The New American Standard Version says all Scripture is inspired by God. That Greek word from which we get the term inspiration or inspired is a compound of a term for God and for breath. And so, quite literally, the word inspiration means God breathed. And that's why the English Standard Version will say all Scripture is breathed out by God. And the NIV will say all Scripture is God breathed. It's God's message coming forth from Him. And the point is that the point that this term refers to the fact that all Scripture originates with God. Even though this is the only verse that uses the term inspiration, it is not the only verse that refers to the divine origin of the word as God's word. The author of Hebrews referred to the Bible's divine origin when he said this in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. God spoke. That's divine origin. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13, where Paul would repeatedly indicate that the things he taught were divinely derived. He said we impart This in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. That is reference to divine origin. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 37, Paul also wrote this. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Divine origin. What he's communicating is a command from God. And also 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, where he commended the Christians in Thessalonica because when they received the word of God, which they heard from him, and as well as his ministerial partners, they, re- they accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, 
the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Once again, referencing the origins as divine. And then also I want to make mention of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 2. In that text, Peter indicated that what was taught and or written by him and others was the commandment of the Lord. All of these passages identify God as the ultimate source of information recorded by the authors of Scripture. And since God is the ultimate source of information for what appears in the Bible, that means the Bible is authoritative. That means the Bible has a divine origin that gives it divine authority. And that applies to everything in the Bible. That applies even to those genealogies that we don't really want to have to wade through. That applies to the architectural plans that we can read about in the Torah, in the Old Testament law, or even in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. That applies to the poetry that's presented in in books like Psalms and the wisdom proverbs. Every genre, every type of, of, of recorded information in Scripture has divine origin and divine authority. And that's why Peter would say this in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 and 21 that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Nothing in the text of scripture he's saying originated from anyone but God. That's what inspiration means. Inspiration means that the Bible has a divine origin and a divine authorization. But inspiration also means that the Bible has human vocabulary and style. And this must be acknowledged. God used actual people to record his message. The Old Testament involved 30 or more different authors, and the New Testament was written by at least eight different individuals. And these authors, they, some of them were kings, some of them were peasants, some of them were philosophers, some of them were fishermen, some of them were poets, some of them were statesmen. We have a doctor, we have scholars. It's a variety of professions and people. And this use of human agency to communicate this divine word is evident in some of the very verses we just read. Going back to the Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. Divine origin, God spoke, human agency through the prophets. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 1 and 2 again, remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Divine origin, commandment of the Lord and Savior. Human agency, the holy prophets and apostles. And finally, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's not the origin, the origin of it's not with man, it's from God. That's divine origin. But human agency, men spoke as they were carried along. So we need to appreciate and understand this balance between divine origin, divine authority, utilizing human agency to communicate. And that's why when you when you approach scripture, you're going to encounter diversity of language. You're going to encounter some uh, some things that appear in Scripture that are very uh, historically specific. Let me give you some examples because we need to appreciate the God's use of humans in the 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 authoring of the text. For instance. There's different vocabulary and style from writer to writer. If I were to tell you that there's a letter in the New Testament that emphasizes the word love, who would have authored it? John. Some of you know that. The letter of 1 John has 104 verses, and over 50 times the word love will appear in just 104 verses. What about joy? Does anybody know a letter that emphasizes joy in it? 
What was that? Philippians. Paul's letter to the Philippians references Paul's little letter to the Philippians, which is just four chapters long, uses the word joy more than any other book in the whole New Testament. These authors, these individuals that God used, emphasize certain words. You could say, oh, that's because God told them exactly what to write. No, they had their own style. They had their own personality in, in, the, in the way they wrote the text. They communicated God's message using their words. God did prevent them from uh, contradicting each other. God did guide them to make sure the message he wanted conveyed was conveyed, but their personalities, their style of writing, their vocabulary, vocabulary shines through. Uh, think about this. If you go to Romans chapter 16, you've got 16 verses there. Paul records greetings to 27 different people by name in that chapter. Those are people he had personal experiences with, personal contact with. It's obvious that Paul's interactions with these people played a part in his writing. God utilized Paul's experience to communicate some messages, even in a list of people that Paul wanted to say hi to. If you read that chapter, it makes you appreciate how Paul recognizes the contributions of these people to the kingdom. And that maybe we need to apply that same principle today that we acknowledge and recognize by name and by contribution the work of people in the kingdom of God, just like he did in that chapter. There's a divine purpose behind it, utilizing Paul's personal experience. And the Bible will make reference to non-biblical documents as well. The Bible will, will reference texts that aren't even part of it. There's the book of Jasher, which is mentioned in Joshua chapter 10. The book of Enoch mentioned in Judges chapter 14. And even a Greek poet mentioned in Acts chapter 17. In the Bible, the biblical authors, they, they employ different literary devices. Much of Scripture is poetry, as I've mentioned already. The Gospels are filled with parables. Jesus used satire. Paul employed allegory and even hyperbole. And James wrote with many metaphors and similes. All these literary devices are part of their linguistic style, part of their vocabulary, part of their personality that God is using to present his message in its final form. And the Bible also uses common sense everyday language as opposed to a technical and scientific language, as one, one author said. Now, it's not to say that, that it wasn't scientific or that it is non-scientific. To, to say that the people at Pentecost came from every nation under heaven is not to speak with scientific exactness. I mean, there weren't any Mayan people there necessarily. Not in the list that we read about, at least. But the writers used common grammatical modes of expressing their topic all showing that their personality, their language, their vocabulary was a part of it. See, ultimately, inspiration does not mean that the writers could never include personal information or unique writing style. It does mean that the Holy Spirit guided the writers to include only the information that would be relevant to the gospel message in some way and only in words permitted by the Holy Spirit. I think the best definition, though, comes from Kyle Butt in his book, Behold the Word of God. He says the biblical definition of inspiration then is the idea that the Holy Spirit moved the Bible writers to pen the words that he wanted, but allowed them to maintain their own unique style and personal experiences that fit the message. When we appreciate and understand and accept that, then we can start studying God's word. Because we have to peel back some of the context, some of the culture, some of the language, some of the history to appreciate the underlying message that has eternal relevance. And so the task of interpreting involves the student or reader at two levels. First, one has to hear the word they heard. We must try to understand what was said to them back then and there. And then we must learn to hear that same word in the here and now. Here's what that means. When we approach the text of Scripture as a student, our first step 
is to figure out what the text meant to its original audience, what it meant back then and there. And once we do that, then we can start figuring out what it means for now and here. Exegesis is a term that you may have heard before. Exegesis is the first task of biblical study. This involves the careful, systematic study of the Scripture to discover the original intended meaning. It is the attempt to hear the word as the original recipients were to have heard it, to find out what was the original intent of the words of the Bible. That's what exegesis is. And so exegesis is focused on the there and then aspect of the text. But that's step one. Step two is called hermeneutics. Now, hermeneutics can refer to the whole field of interpretation, including exegesis. But in a much narrower sense, it can, have, it can refer to the contemporary relevance of the text. And for our purposes, that's how I intend to use it. So for us, hermeneutics will be focused on the here and now meaning of the text. Or to say it another way, hermeneutics for us refers to how the text applies to our current situation. So the first step, exegesis. Figure out what the text meant to the people who first heard it. Second step is hermeneutics. Figure out how that applies to us. That's the two-step process of biblical interpretation. And you need to keep one rule in mind as you engage in it. This, the one overarching rule you need to understand about biblical interpretation is that you must start with exegesis. You cannot start with, with hermeneutics. You cannot start with application because you don't know what you're applying. You first have to start by understanding what it meant to the original audience before you can apply it to the current audience. You know, when it comes to exegesis, when it comes to that first step of figuring out what it meant to the original audience, you may not realize that happens sometimes, but if you've ever heard a preacher or a teacher say what Jesus meant was, and then fill in the blank, or if you've ever heard a preacher or a teacher say back then they used to do this or do that, that's exegesis. That's explaining how the text meant something in a particular context in history. And then the application comes after that. You have to understand it in its original context. The reason you must begin with exegesis is because the only proper control for hermeneutics is to be found in the original intent of the biblical text. We could apply verses however we want. We can take every verse out of context and make it fit whatever we want it to fit. And unfortunately, sometimes we do that. So if we want to apply the text of Scripture correctly, we first must understand what it originally meant to its original audience. The here and now understanding of a text must be predicated on a there and then understanding of the text. And so good biblical interpretation accepts that a text cannot mean what it could never have meant for its original readers and hearers. Let me read that again. A text cannot mean what it could never have meant for its original readers and hearers. Later in this series, we'll try to break down different genres in the Bible and, and how this matters for those genres. But let me give you one example. Have any of you ever heard somebody try to tell you that the book of Revelation mentions helicopters? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that before. Some of you have. It could have never meant that to its original audience. That's what we're talking about. You cannot apply a text in a way that it never would have been understood to the original readers. And now a bunch of you are going to come up to me afterwards and say, where does Revelation talk about helicopters? I'll save that for another day. So, as we go through a process of us learning how to study the Bible together, Keep that one rule in mind. You start by understanding the original context before you transition into grappling with the application. That will be our ground rule moving forward. Now what I want to do is introduce you to something called the interpretive journey. And you're going to have to... I, I really kind of wanted to save it for next week, but I've gone fast enough that we're going to squeeze it in tonight. The interpretive journey, these are the five steps we're going to take when it comes to interpreting Scripture, to studying Scripture. 
And we're going to use this metaphor, and it's not original to me. I, I got it from a book called Grasping God's Word. If you want to do your own investigation into it, it's a textbook, but it's very reader-friendly. It's called Grasping God's Word. It's a great resource for this study. But the interpretive journey looks like this. Now, y'all figure this out. You're on your own. I'm just kidding. The idea is on the left side of the screen... I had to think about you guys for a moment. On the left side of the screen, where you can see the number one, and there's a city there, that's the original message for the original audience. God's Word was written to specific people in a specific time in a specific place. Our first step is to figure out what that message was, what that message meant or was understood to them. And then we have to face a divide. The analogy compares it to a river. And if you can read it through that river, you have culture and language and time and situation. All those variables impact our understanding of Scripture. Particularly if you're reading the Old Testament, that's a whole nother culture. That's a whole other time. A whole other language a whole other situation, even a whole other covenant. All those factors affect our ability to understand and apply the text. So first, we've got to identify uh, what it meant to the original readers. Second, we've got to approach this, this divide between us and the original readers and mark the differences between us and them and know how we've got to, what we've got to span, the distance we have to span between us and them. And then the authors of this book, Grasping God's Word, they have this concept called the principalizing bridge. And all that really means is we have to, have, we have to discover the theological principle in the text that applies from both that situation back then to our situation now. Every text will have some theological principle that regardless of time and place, Still exists. And the principalizing bridge is finding that theological principle that can cross the chasm of culture and language and time and situation. And from that theological principle, or principles, because there could be more than one, you can construct, or you can come up with, or you can find the application for today. And there could be many. That's why there are multiple roads on the right side of the screen for a more contemporary uh, setting. So, what we're going to attempt to learn to do is to use these five steps in the interpretive journey to, un to, to apply them to any text at any given time to get us from point A, which is the there and then, the message for that original audience, to point whatever, which is today's application. We'll be working through that for the next several weeks. Actually, we will not be working through that next week. We'll be next week, or for the next two Wednesdays, I'm out of town. Brother John Iverson Sr. has agreed to fill in for me. Uh, so for two weeks, uh, you won't see me. Uh, I, one of the problems with our new um, quarterly schedule, I didn't take into account that I still schedule summer series in the month of August at this point in time. And so I'm, I guess, speaking uh, uh, one week and going to a conference the other and uh, I didn't think about that when I agreed to teach a Wednesday night class starting in August. So I apologize for that, but Brother Iverson has agreed to teach, and I'm, I'm certain he'll do a wonderful job, and I appreciate him for doing that. Um, let's talk about these five steps, because they look like this. First step is grasping the text in their town. Again, this is an analogy. You're trying to get the message from one town to the other, and you've got to cross a river of, of differences. The first step in the process, as we've said, is exegesis. And that is the process of understanding what the text meant to the original audience. So the question you're asking in this, in this phase is, what did the text mean to the biblical audience? To do that, you first have to just read the text and read it carefully and read it multiple times. You spend your time examining the text, scrutinizing the grammar, analyzing the significant words, 
and trying to figure out the historical context as best you can. Now, we're going to, in future, class, future studies, talk about historical context. We're going to talk about literary context. We're going to talk about how to pull those out of the text. So I'm not, I'm not just sitting here saying, hey, find the historical context and not telling you how to do it. We'll get there. Right now is an overview. But the first step, you've got you to gotta spend time in the text, not, re, not, um, not just reading devotionally, not just reading to make progress in your daily reading schedule, studying the text. When I return in a couple weeks, we're going to talk about how to read sentences, how to read paragraphs, how to read chapters. So that you can, uh, to give you some practical skills for taking one verse in the Bible and breaking it down. And one paragraph in the Bible and breaking it down. And one larger section, whether it's a chapter or or even bigger, and breaking it down. Because you've got to be able to read the text thoroughly to be able to engage in the process of study. And after you have, so in this first step, read the text carefully. Try to pull out as much as you can from it, scrutinizing its grammar, analyzing significant words, looking for historical and literary context, and, and so on. And after completing all of that study and all of that scrutinization, what you try to do is write out what the passage meant to the original audience. To do that, you have to use past tense verbs. And I'm going to give you some examples, not tonight, but in a future lesson, of what that will look like. Again, just overviewing right now. After you've f- finished the grasping, God's, uh, grasping the text in their town process, you then move on to checking out that river, that divide that separates us from their time and place. And this step is called measuring the width of the river. The question you're ultimately asking at this stage is what are the differences between the biblical audience and us today? Because we're separated by culture, language, situation, time, covenant, various factors. And these differences form a metaphorical river that hinders us from moving straight from the meaning in their context at that time to our context today. And the width of the river can vary from passage to passage. So in this step... You look for significant differences between that situation then and our situation now. And if you're studying an Old Testament passage, you have to think, how is it different then than it is now that Christ has come? So there's multiple levels to examining the differences between the now and, I mean, between the there and then and the here and now. In addition, you have to consider whether or not Um, I'm sorry, in addition, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, you try to identify any unique aspects of the situation of your passage. You want to understand what's going on. You want to try to call out what's going on there that might be different than here. And so this is a difference. Sorry. This is a process of discovering the differences. Now, that gets you to the river, but now you've got to get across the river. And so the next step, step three, is called crossing the principalizing bridge. You know, principalizing is not a real word. That's because us ministers make up words. Except I didn't make this one up, the authors of the book did. The question you have when you're trying to create this bridge is what is the theological principle in the text? In this step, you're looking for, for theological principle or principles that are reflected in the meaning of the text that you've already identified back in the first step of the process. The, the theological principles is part of the meaning. The original meaning. Your text is not to create. Your task is not to create the meaning, but to discover the meaning intended by the author to the original audience. And when you find the meaning, then you can build off of that by finding similarities between us and them, wherein the meaning would apply. To determine the theological principle, you have to recall the differences you identified in step two. And then try to identify similarities between the situation back then and our situation today. So step two is focused on differences. Step three is focused on similarities. And after you review the differences and identify the similarities, you return to the meaning for the biblical audience that you described in the first step and try to define that broader theological 
principle that can apply to both the biblical audience and the current audience. And that's how you build the bridge. There are some criteria that we'll talk about later for building that bridge. But that's the process. And then when you come to step four, where you're dealing with the Bible as a whole. Step four is called consulting the biblical map. And the question you have to pose in this process is how does our theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? In other words, now that you have figured out what the principle is for that text at that time that can apply to our time, you then have to think, well, does this fit with the rest of Scripture? During this step, you're not just thinking about the context of that single passage right there and then. You're thinking about everything the Bible has to say on the subject. If you're studying an Old Testament passage, you want to consult the New Testament. Does it have anything new to say on this subject? Does it add anything to this principle? Does it modify it in any way? You're wanting to consider if there's anything else in the text of Scripture that affects the principle that you've drawn out of this particular passage. So at the end of the steps, sometimes you need to reword your principle slightly to ensure that it fits with the rest of Scripture because here's the thing. God doesn't contradict himself. If you discover that the principle that you have come up with based on the text you're reading doesn't gel with something else in the text of Scripture, then yours can't be right. So you might have to reword it, reconsider it. And before we close, let me give you this one last one. Step five is grasping the text in our town. This is asking the question, how should individual Christians today live out the theological principles that you discovered in the passage? This is all about application. And there can be multiple applications based on the principles you've discovered. Now, here's what I know just happened. I just ran through all of this, and your head is spinning like, that doesn't make sense to me. I need more details. I need you to tell me how to do each of these steps. Well, we will. Again, tonight, my goal was to give you an overview, a summary of where we're going. And in the coming weeks, we're going to get more specific on what it means to grasp the text in their town, to do that exegetical process, to discover what the text meant in its origins. And I'm going to give you practical steps on how to do that and each one of these steps along the way. So hold on. We'll get there. It's a slow journey. But it's a journey worth taking so that you can study God's word and feel good about the outcomes. Let's close with a word of prayer and then we'll get dismissed. Lord, we're grateful to study your word tonight. And we know that, that we're, we're endeavoring to understand better how to study the Bible for ourselves. We ask for your blessings on each of us individually to be better equipped to examine your word for ourselves. And may, as we go through this class and engage in this study in weeks to come, may you help us to develop skills that are necessary. May you bless me as I try to communicate those to the best of my ability. And Lord, may we, by the end of this class, become better students of your word than we were when it began. We love you, and it's through Jesus' name we pray. Amen.